Hobble's back, but Voyager 1 is down. An absolutely stunning supernova picture from Webb, and how talking to whales will teach us how to talk to aliens. All this and more in this week's Space Bites. Today, we've got some bad news and some good news. Now, I'm just gonna choose for you. We're gonna start with the bad news, and that is that Voyager 1 is down. If you remember a couple of months ago, we lost contact with Voyager 2, and that's because NASA sent it some commands. It turned its main antenna a little bit away from Earth, and it was no longer able to transmit commands and receive commands from Earth. And so to fix this problem, NASA sent this shout from the Deep Space Network. They caught Voyager 2's attention. It was able to shift back, aim at Earth again, and communications were resumed. Well, now there's a problem with Voyager 1. So the problem is, is that there's a computer on board Voyager 1 called the Flight Data System. This is a computer that collects all of the data coming from the science instruments as well as its own internal health and instrumentation, and then collects this into and prepares a package that will then be sent back home to Earth the next time Voyager 1 has to communicate with ground control. And recently, it just started sending out a repeating stream of ones and zeros of nonsense. And obviously, you know, your first instinct is turn it off, turn it back on again. Of course, like think about how scary that would be to turn your spacecraft off billions of kilometers away and then turn it back on again. But they did that and it didn't fix the problem. So now they're having to work more deeply into it. Hopefully they'll find a solution. It doesn't sound like it's terminal for Voyager 1, but still, uh, all is not well in the outer solar system. All right, now you get some good news, and that is Hubble is back online. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about how a problem with one of its gyros brought the Space Telescope offline. And just a reminder, the Hubble Space Telescope was originally launched with six of these gyroscopes. And what they are is they're like rapidly spinning wheels on board Hubble that it then uses, like say it's watching some target, if the telescope moves a tiny little bit, they receive a torque, and that tells Hubble that it's drifting away from its intended position, and so it can put itself back. It's got other instruments as well. It's got something called the fine guidance sensor, and then it's got its reaction wheels, which it uses to like turn the telescope in new directions. And so when Hubble was originally launched, it had six of these gyros, and they all failed. And then NASA did a servicing mission in 2009 and replaced all six gyros and in fact used a new design. So it was back to its full complement of gyros. Since then, three of them have failed and now they're down to their three remaining gyros. The good news is that they were able to resolve the problem with the gyros, able to bring the telescope back online and they didn't have to shut off another one. So it's still back to three gyros. And theoretically, the telescope can work all the way down to one gyro, but at a diminished capacity. So we don't want that. So hopefully this is the last time it'll have any problem with the gyros. Yeah. A giant stream of stars in deep space. Astronomers have been studying the coma cluster and they found this very faint stream of stars that is connecting two galaxies together. The discovery was made using fairly small telescopes with follow-on observations. They're able to get a more detailed image of it. And it's very clear there is this line of stars connecting these galaxies together. Astronomers estimate that it is about 10 times the size of the Milky Way, just in terms of its length. 
And so like what causes this still unknown, but there's probably some kind of tidal forces left over from all these galaxies that are interacting inside the coma cluster. And so one of the really cool ideas and sort of why we picked this one for this episode was because you sort of imagine some far future of intergalactic travel when you're trying to go from galaxy to galaxy. And instead of having to cross the vast gaps in between galaxies, there are these stepping stones, these trails that you can follow from one galaxy to another. Instead of having to go millions of light years of distance, you just can cross the distances between all of those stars to get from galaxy to galaxy. I love the idea. Maybe we don't know of any exomoons. Now we know of over 5,000 exoplanets, thanks to Kepler, TESS, and all the ground-based observations. Like, it just keeps growing. And so far, astronomers think they've found two examples of exomoons. That is a moon that is orbiting around a planet that is orbiting around another star. So the two known exomoons are called Kepler 1625b and Kepler 1708b. And exomoons are very exciting because they turn what would be uninhabitable planets back into potentially habitable planets. Think about the forest moon of Endor, where you've got this gas giant planet orbiting in the habitable zone of its star. The planet is inhabitable, but the moon is in the habitable zone, and so it's a terrestrial type planet. Unfortunately, it appears that those two exomoons probably don't exist. So in order to find an exomoon, what the astronomers did was they looked at the planet passing in front of the star, and that's the transit method. And then they measured a whole bunch of those transits and looked at all of the light curves. And they're looking for, beyond just the obvious dip from the planet passing in front of the star, any additional dips that would be happening when you can imagine the different configurations where you've got the planet and the moon beside it, or you've got the planet and the moon beside it, or the planets in front of the moon or vice versa. And so over time, you would see variations that would say, okay, no, there is a moon orbiting around this planet. So what researchers did was they simulated millions of examples of light curves that you would get from various scenarios of different moons orbiting different planets uh, in different types of stars. And what they found is that the just the noise generated by these different scenarios is a better fit to the kinds of curves that were seen with those two planets than with exomoons causing that. And so just you have to assume that the error is still too large and shows that finding exomoons is going to be an incredibly tricky challenge. And the answer, as always, is that we need more data. Another amazing picture from Webb. All right, so take a look at this stunning picture from the James Webb Space Telescope. What you're looking at is the supernova remnant Cassiopeia A. And this is a supernova that exploded about 10,000 years ago. And then it took some time for the light to reach us on Earth. It was seen in the sky sometime around 1667, although historians still argue about exactly when it happened. So 10,000 years before that, was when it actually went off. And so in this image, you're seeing this expanding ball of gas and dust from the supernova. It's about 10 light years across, and the material is streaming outward at about 4,000 to 6,000 kilometers per second. So still very fast. Webb used two of its instruments to analyze the supernova remnant. And so you get sort of two interesting views of what it looks like. And of course, Webb sees things in infrared. And so you're seeing objects that are cooler, gas, dust, things that are 
harder to see through the obscuring material. And Webb is so precise, it was able to resolve objects as small as 100 astronomical units across. You think about like the distance from the sun to Pluto is about 50 astronomical units. So double that distance. So those small tiny knots in there are really small compared to the size of the actual supernova remnant. Now compare this image of Cassie taken by James Webb to the one taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Totally different picture. And then compare that to the image taken by the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Again, a very different image. Now, Chandra is showing you the hot gas, places where gas has been heated to 30 million Kelvin. And that's hot enough that it's actually releasing X-ray radiation, while Hubble is focusing more in the visible range and Webb is showing us in the infrared range. And it really shows you sort of the difference of the different observatories and how they can work together to show us different aspects of one object. Every week, we give you a chance to vote for what you thought was the best story this week. And the winner this week was the potential that Starship will do a test of space-based cryogenic propellant transfer on its upcoming test. Now, there's no more updates that we've gotten from then. I've heard rumors that Starship might be attempting another launch fairly soon, but no concrete details yet. Maybe we'll report about it next week. I hope so. Um, but thank you everybody who voted. Now, of course, we post the vote within a couple of days to the community tab of our channel. And you can go there specifically or just as you're scrolling on YouTube, you should see the vote. Let us know what you think. Of course, if you want the best chance to find it, make sure you subscribe, click on the notifications bell, and that will give you the best chance to see the vote in your stream. An amateur astronomer detects smashing planets. Astronomy is one of those fields where amateurs can have a big impact. Okay, there's a pun coming here. And one of the big impact is one case where an astronomer discovered planets that had crashed together. So what happened was astronomers were on X discussing that a star they were observing had been dimming kind of strangely. And so an amateur astronomer named Artu Senio looked through archival data from NASA's NEOWISE mission. And we've talked about this before, that there are people out there that are just looking through these giant surveys of data gathered by various telescopes. And NEOWISE was one that was launched by NASA several years ago. It was designed to do a survey of the area around the solar system and look for cooler objects, brown dwarfs, maybe planet nines, things like that in the outer solar system. And it wasn't able to find it and kind of ruled out that theory that maybe the sun has a brown dwarf companion that comes by every few million years. So Senyo looked through this archival data. He was able to find the exact star in the NEOWISE data. And he found that in fact, it had created this larger brightening in the infrared. And so then he told this to the astronomers. The astronomers and Senyo worked together and they were able to figure out that what happened was at some point in the last couple of years, two ice giant planets crashed into each other, produced this cloud of debris that caused it to brighten in the infrared and also match the dimming that was seen in visible light. Really interesting. Tiny telescope, big science. When you think of exoplanet research, you probably think of really big telescopes. Think about the Kepler Observatory or the extremely large telescope or James Webb. But in fact, the science that's needed to confirm and study exoplanets doesn't have to be a gigantic space telescope. It can be done with a much smaller instrument. So there is a space telescope called the Colorado Ultraviolet Transit Experiment, or CUTE. 
and it is a spacecraft that is at about the size of a box of cereal. And its only job is to study transiting hot Jupiter exoplanets. The mission launched in 2021, so it's been collecting data for about two years now. And recently astronomers presented a bunch of the information, the things they discovered with this very small space telescope. They've been doing continuous observations of about seven hot Jupiters. And of course, these are the planets that are really close to their stars, orbit very quickly, just within a couple of days. So you get that periodic dimming of the light on a very regular basis. And what they're able to find is that about half of the worlds were actually losing their atmospheres because they're interacting with the powerful radiation coming from the star. They're too close. And one of the big questions that astronomers have is like, how do you get these hot Jupiters? Are they sustainable over the long term? Can you move a planet close to the star and have it just survive getting blasted by intense radiation over billions of years? In some of the cases, the answer appears to be no. But in other cases, it appears that the answer is yes. That in fact, it is stable for longer periods of time. So it's pretty cool that there's such a small, relatively inexpensive space telescope that is doing all this work. I hope you've been enjoying all of the new interviews that we've been doing. You can kind of sense my obsessions about the things I'm really interested in. And right now, I'm really interested in about kind of the origin of life, the methods that we're gonna to use to find biosignatures, how do we know life from non-life? And like, what's a great way to just even understand what life is, whether we find it here on planet Earth or whether we find it out there in space. I get into this sort of mindset when I'm working on news where I start to get obsessed about a certain kind of story. And so as I am finding new papers and journals and stories and things like that, I see the researchers who are doing this work and then I reach out to them and I schedule an interview with them. And so my hope is that you get to go beyond just this shallow surface area of information about what's going on in space and astronomy, but we get to really dive in deep and get the detailed information. And that's what the interviews do. So if you find this stuff here on Space Bites or even on the question show a little too simple, I promise the interviews will go as deep and as challenging as any kind of science reporting that you can watch. And we release like a couple of these interviews every week and we do the absolute minimum of advertising. Even though these things are gonna be like an hour long or more, we don't put any ads in the middle of them, so hopefully you know you can put them on in a classroom setting, things like that, and it should be good for learning. Evidence of a nearby kilonova. One of the big mysteries in chemistry is where did all the heavy elements come from? We know that back at the Big Bang, you had hydrogen turning into helium and lithium and other things like that. Inside stars, you have fusion that is creating heavier elements. And when the largest stars die by supernova, you get definitely iron, but then some heavier elements beyond that. But more recently, we've discovered that in fact, the heaviest elements seem to come from colliding neutron stars, kilonovae. Although these events are very rare, when you think about the age of the solar system, some must have happened in the age of the Earth. And astronomers have been looking for the telltale signature of a nearby kilonova event in sediments at the bottom of the ocean. And it looks like they found what they were looking for. They found a layer of sediment at the bottom of the ocean that was laid down about three to four million years ago. And it contains two elements. One is iron 60. And this is an element that can be produced in supernova. So that is not the telltale signature. But the other one is plutonium 244, which you really can only get from kilonova collisions. So scientists were able to confirm the age of the sediment by using radioisotope dating on the two elements. Iron 60 has a half-life of 1.5 million years. 
while plutonium-244 has a half-life of 81 million years. And so they're able to calculate the ratio between the iron and the plutonium to calculate the date when this layered down and also confirm that it came from a kilonova. So between three and four million years ago, a kilonova went off relatively close to the solar system. Does talking to whales teach you to talk to aliens? I talk a lot about how we've got examples of other worlds here in the solar system that can teach us about extrasolar planets. Like we have the Earth, but then we have Venus and Mars, which are both within the habitable zone. And so we can kind of compare and contrast those. We've got really weird worlds like Titan, which has a very thick atmosphere, but yet it's incredibly cold, very different lakes of methane. And so you've got all these things to compare. But the thing that we don't have is an example of any kind of extraterrestrial intelligence that we can talk to on a regular basis out beyond Earth. But in fact, we have examples of intelligences here on Earth that are sufficiently alien to us that we can actually learn a lot by trying to communicate with them. So there's this really interesting collaboration between SETI researchers and whale researchers. Researchers have been listening to whales for a long time, but we've gotten to this point now where they're able to use machine learning to try to understand some of the whale songs and be able to generate like whale gibberish and be able to try and communicate them back to them. Researchers were hearing whale songs. They played a response to a whale. The whale came over and for about 20 minutes, they were having a conversation with the whale, going back and forth, sending information. The whale was changing what it was saying based on what the researchers were sending out. Now, I don't, didn't get the impression that anybody knew what they were talking about, but at least there's like enough meta information going on that the whale found it interesting to continue the conversation. And I really like this as an analog to what it might be like for us to try and talk with aliens. Like say we did get a signal coming from some extraterrestrial intelligence. We grew up on different worlds. We probably developed our technology in different directions. There's things that we do share about the universe and yet there's things that are probably very different and we will have to go through this process of trying to understand. And of course, you have to deal with the great distances, giant communications delays. You receive their information. You have to think about it for a while. Send back a response. What do you send back? We can test these ideas more rapidly here on Earth with whales and great apes and octopuses. All right, I'm going to talk about the Voyagers a little more. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Ansis, Joel Yanzi, Antonio Lofi-Lara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, Modzo, George, David Gilton, Andrew Gross, Jeremy Matter, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. Although I was born before the final Apollo astronauts left the moon, I was too young to remember. I kind of remember the Viking spacecraft, probably not, but the spacecraft that I really remember the Voyagers. I remember their launch in 1977. I remember when they flew past Jupiter and Saturn, like at the end of 79, 80. I remember when Voyager 2 flew past Uranus in 1986. I remember when it flew past Neptune in 1989. I was graduating high school that year. And so they have been with me for like my entire life almost. And yet they are running down. They have a decaying chunk of plutonium on board. And every year that goes by, it produces less and less heat, which can be used for less and less electricity. Engineers at NASA are doing everything they can to prolong the life of the spacecraft. 
and they have to make this horrible decision every time they end up with less power, they have to figure out which of their instruments they're going to turn off. Although there's still some propellant on board, it is running out of this plutonium that's going to provide the electricity for the spacecraft to maintain its operations. And we're probably not far from that. Probably just a couple of years from now, it's going to cross below some point where they're going to have to turn off the way to be able to communicate home. And then these spacecraft that have felt like they've been with us forever will go offline. And so just like prepare yourself. Don't be surprised when this day comes and they have to turn off Voyager 1, Voyager 2, maybe not in that order, and those spacecraft go silent. Now, fortunately, they are both equipped with the golden record, and it's estimated that the spacecraft will survive for a billion years as they get sandblasted over time by interstellar dust, and yet they'll still be largely recognizable. And so we've got hundreds of millions of years for aliens to find the Voyager records, to translate them, to send them back home to Earth in the form of some giant spaceship. I don't know about you, but I'm going to feel sad when they do have to get shut off. All right, we'll see you next week.